Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by C.J. Guftison, the CFO at Parts Tech and the founder and author of the Mostly Metrics newsletter. We'll be covering three main areas with C.J. today. First, the role of metrics in the journey from FP&A to CFO. Second, the importance of thought leadership in finance and specifically the CFO role. And third, how does the use of metrics change once you're the CFO of an organization? CJ, please take a moment to give a brief overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Thanks for having me on, Ray. I think we crossed paths, you know, online a bit. This is kind of like, you know, internet friends becoming better internet friends. So I'm um, excited to be here and, and talk metrics and finance with a fellow metrics fan. So, you know, I, I started my career out of college, I went to Boston College at PwC, you know, big four consulting group I worked in, mostly mergers and acquisitions. You know, I did that for two years, mostly because I didn't really know what I wanted to do out of college, but it kind of gave me the reps or repetitions to kind of see different business models, which was neat. And, you know, that introduced me to SaaS, I think from the outset. A lot of companies back then were, were selling perpetual base licenses. And, you know, there's a lot of professional services that went along with the implementations of those. And that was the first time I was introduced to, you know, enterprise software, which kind of caught my eye. And then from there, I went over to a private equity firm, large buyout firm. And, you know, I helped with the valuations of their portfolio companies, making sure they stayed on track with profitability targets, revenue targets. And I also helped with some of the fundraising there. And so that's kind of where I, I got my Excel chops, I think, in financial modeling. And I also learned how, you know, the funding side of the table works and, and how they spot good companies. And then from there, I kind of made uh, the switch over to the dark side or, or maybe the fun side, but went over to help, you know, scale some hyper growth software companies. I went to a backup and recovery software company for a couple of years, worked in a number of different strategy roles. Uh, eventually made my way to FPNA. Didn't even really know what FPNA was at the time, but learned on the fly and, and built out a group. And then, you know, I extended kind of that FPNA trajectory at a fast growing cybersecurity firm. So those were kind of my roles up until this CFO position uh, most recently. It's a varied background from kind of mergers and acquisitions analysts to FPNA at hyper growth, really successful companies, including Veeam and Sync to now a CFO. But first of all, I wanted to go back to something you said. We went from internet acquaintances to Zoom friends. Yeah. And maybe soon we can actually hang out at the Circle Tavern and become drinking buddies. What do you think? I'm I'm always in for that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a big Miller Lite guy. So maybe I'll even let you buy me one. Okay. Happy to do it. So it's the least I can do for you being a guest. But <laughs> let's talk a little bit about those experiences. Right. This is your first CFO role, correct, CJ, that you're in it today? Is. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how those experiences prepped you to become a CFO 
And that I'm really looking at it from a rear view mirror. Now that you're a CFO, how do you see it's really helping you? Yeah, I think I learned in FPNA how successful people organize their resources for success. And FPNA, you know, gets you into the room to talk to different people within the organization. And now as a CFO, I'm helping those people run their departments more effectively in a more holistic way. So I think FPNA gave me an excuse, I think, to ask questions that I may not have had the chance to ask in other positions. So like if I was working in, say, like, you know, product marketing or something, I, yeah, I would get across the org and certain projects I would work on, but I probably wouldn't have an excuse to ask more pointed questions. And I think, you know, FPNA, it's kind of a, almost a detective license to go around and ask people things that, you know, you're, you're both curious about, but also to try to deconstruct the levers of, of how you can uh, improve performance. You know, I love that answer, CJ, kind of that cross-functional insight and experience that you gain. I grew up my first about 10 years at GE, and a lot of our CFOs and leaders came from corporate audit for that same right. exact right. reason. They had to dig into the financials across every function and every process, and it gave them that kind of cross-functional perspective. But let me turn that question around. What are the one or two things that has surprised you about <laughs> being the CFO that you weren't quite maybe expecting? Oh man, I could I could write a book on this. I think it's actually how many things you have to approve and sign. And you know, it sounds silly at first, but there's a lot of stuff that appears to be minutia, but you do have to read it all and make sure you aren't signing up for a bad deal. So I've spent a ton of time, and this kind of expedited my learning curve too, just about the business, but reading through the contracts we signed before my time with our suppliers and our vendors and paying a lot of attention to the payment terms we agree to now. So this is something new from a procurement and I think deal-making standpoint, I didn't have a ton of exposure to before. And the other thing that, you know, I'm always trying to get better at is negotiating skills. So at the end of the day, the buck kind of stops with me in terms of how much we're spending. And I remember my first week on the job, I, I got thrown at our Salesforce renewal. So um, it was probably, you know, the scariest contract as a CFO, first time CFO you could be thrown at just because Salesforce has so many products, so much leverage in terms of, you know, you're the little guy in the room. And so I think that was an eye-opening experience. So, you know, procurement negotiations and all the contracts. Yeah, I love that. I ask this question all the time because it's the two sides of the fence you need to straddle. One is, do you like auto renewals? in the agreements you sign with vendors and nine out of 10 CFOs like, Oh no, 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 never have an auto renewal. But I go, do you have auto renewal in your agreements? And you're <laughs> of course we wouldn't back away. Of course, away from I wouldn't that. you? Yeah. So it's interesting to try to straddle those two sides, right? It is. And I've actually asked myself that a couple of times, especially in like a high inflationary environment where there probably were some contracts that we said, no, let's just kick the can down the road and try to go back to the negotiating table later. But then you're probably saying, wow, you know, the renewal is probably going to be a 5% increase. And with inflation, I got hit with an 11% increase. So I guess you never know, but I, I definitely am of that camp where I want <laughs> all my uh, vendors to sign up for auto renewal. Gotcha. Well, um, we could spend an hour just on that, but I'm going to pivot to another topic, and it's really how we became internet acquaintances before we became Zoom friends. And I think it was the only CFO, but they highlighted that your Mostly Metrics newsletter was a must-follow. And it was really due to both the quality and consistency of the content you shared. 
Honestly, CJ, that's how I found you was from the Mostly Mattress Newsletter. So what was the catalyst for you deciding to invest your precious time to actually be the founder and author of Mostly Metrics and also populate it across social media channels? Yeah, and it was really for three different reasons. And this was something I set out on like two years ago. And a lot of people only really know that I, or think I've been writing for probably like four months now. So for a year and a half, I had 200 subscribers, but now in the past six months, we've added over 12,000. So we should finish the year about 15,000 subscribers and growing. And there was, there were a lot of days I was basically writing to me, my dog, my mom, and my wife, even they said they read, but I'm not completely sure. They may have just, you know, wanted to make me feel better, but you know, I started it for three different things. So I was at a company called sneak and I was learning a lot of things that, you know, I thought, Hey, we're going through a period of hyper growth. I want to be the best employee I can be. And I don't want to forget what I'm learning. So it was really an exercise of just documenting for myself. This is the playbook because if I, you know, go somewhere else down the road, I want to, you know, be able to reference it. You know, I'm learning about net retention for the first time. What are the different levers, you know, of how you increase net retention? What are some of the shortfalls and, you know, mistakes people commonly make? So, you know, you learn a lot of things and you're afraid you, you're going to forget it. So I wanted to write it down for myself. So I had that playbook. So, you know, I could be, a finance professional at other places too, who kind of knew which direction we wanted to go. And the second thing was a bit selfish, but I wanted an excuse to ask, to talk to smart people. People get a million emails saying, Hey, can I just pick your brain? Can I, you know, take you out for coffee just to ask you like career advice? And you don't really stick out from the crowd. And I figured if I wanted to talk to a venture capitalist, if I wanted to talk to a thought leader in finance, someone else who was a writer, and I had kind of this chip saying, hey, you know, I have this newsletter, I can interview you for it. Um, maybe I could ask for input on a topic I'm writing about. That would probably have a better, you know, probability of me getting across the table with them. And then the third thing is just, this is how I remember things, just writing stuff down. You know, I was you know, the editor of my high school newspaper, I wrote from a college newspaper and I enjoy writing. And it's also like if I was studying for a test, I would write it down over and over again to remember it. So something I enjoy and it's just, you know, how I retain knowledge. Wow. A writer and a financial expert all in one. That's a unique combination of skill set. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm an expert at, at either really, but I'm passionate about both. And by the way, I'm I'm very impressed that you got your mother and your wife to follow your early writing because my wife is a CFO and it's still <laughs> like pulling teeth to get her to read one of my LinkedIn posts <laughs> on net revenue retention. Yeah. But um yeah. Well, we're gonna pivot to another one. And this is an important pivot, especially for our listening audience that are in the middle of FY23 planning. It's a tough environment. Yeah, and right. it's really due to the uncertainty of several factors, including macroeconomic trends. Are we in a recession? Aren't we in a recession? And then we see because of that uncertainty, CFOs like you are really scrutinizing a lot of their variable spending, and that includes SaaS software spending, consolidating right. budgets, consolidating vendors, et cetera. So my question to you is, what advice could you share with fellow CFOs, especially first-time CFOs that may be going through their first annual planning process in a new yeah. organization. Yeah, What's I know. What's your that advice, feels... CJ? My advice would be to not go from a low-cost, efficient model to a high-cost model overnight. So make smaller bets along the way and see if they pay off before going on. 
it's it's really hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube, if you know what I mean. So I think we're coming off of like a three-year run where, you know, you could raise a ton of money, you could have a massive marketing program spend, you could go and hire, you know, 50 people in a couple months. And that's one way to grow and, and capture a market opportunity, but it may not be the most efficient. And it's probably a bit riskier, especially if you don't know if that growth is going to be there with customers. So I would say to run some experiments. I would also say like, you know, 75% of your costs walk on two legs and most software companies, it's people. So the first step is just nailing your headcount forecast and nailing the phasing of it. I like to talk to leaders and give them a max headcount budget or backstop for each period. And that gives them, you know, the latitude to operate within that and kind of swap around some of the positions they're hiring for within, you know, a degree of how much people cost. But it also makes sure that we know how many people we're going to have on payroll at any given time. And I like to look at it as a max number rather than incremental. When you think about incremental, like so many different things can happen. You can have someone leave the company and you backfill them. You can have someone leave the company and you backfill with a different position. You can have someone transfer departments and it becomes really tricky to try to track that over time. Even with like software, like Workday, stuff can still be really, really hard to keep in track with when it comes to headcount. The other thing I would say is only allow the org to purchase and implement one major software per quarter. And, you know, that may sound kind of stingy, but it's less so from like the money impact of like forecasting, you know, what the cash outlay is and more about how much can my org stop what they're doing to digest and correctly implement this software. I've been at places before where, you know, you try to implement NetSuite and an FP&A tool and an HRIS system all at the same time. And like it was all done in good faith, but it goes off the rails because you're moving too many things at once. I think it's difficult for fast growing companies to kind of change the tires as is while the car is still on the tracks. So software is a big part of that. I think, you know, you, you got to really scrutinize not just the spend, but like, can my org actually stop and do this? Like, I think a lot about how many, like the proliferation of sales tools that are out there, like for sales productivity, like the gongs of the world and zoom info. And they're all amazing tools really. And you can get a ton out of them, but if your salespeople don't have enough time to go and review the data from it, you're not going to get a ton of signal from it. Like you have to assemble the team and the hierarchy the right way. So you have enough people to look at it. So yeah, just to sum that point up, I would say don't buy a ton of software and try to implement it all at once. Got you. So, so three things. Number one, don't go from low cost efficient to high cost, potentially high value experiment first. Number two, look at total headcount and yeah. kind of look at that yeah. on a period over period basis. And number three, be careful of platform proliferation, because honestly, over the last three years, good for us as an industry, bad for our customers. We've seen so much proliferation of SaaS products and point solutions. Not only does it add up from a cost perspective, but managing data between 20, 30 platforms becomes very difficult. Great advice, but let me double click back on the first thing. And it's actually the second thing you said is about headcount. I find for earlier stage, fast growing companies like you're in today, it's almost impossible to do an annual plan or an annual budget because you don't know what's going to really happen right in your first one or two quarters and with the uncertainty of the external macroeconomic environment you really don't know cj what do you think about actually having maybe an annual budget but we and that's really kind of a high level but we have a quarterly operating budget 
that we review what happened in Q1 before we decide exactly what we're going to do in Q2, both on the R and the E side of the ledger. I think that's an excellent outlook. You know, we, we close the books on a monthly basis and we read forecasts on a quarterly basis. And I say reforecast, but honestly, like when you're at a startup, you're rebuilding the next 12 months of what you think that high level plan is every quarter or every three months. So I think like I learned the hard way when I tried to make an annual plan in 2020 when COVID hit. And I think we threw that thing out like second week in February. And from there on, it was let's go three months at a time. We'll make a plan and, and we'll course correct as necessary from there. So it sounds like your experience is that's exactly the way to do it. But that board and investors still want your annual budget, right? And often they want to hold you to it. They do. And that's that's a tough conversation as well, because it's it's funny because, you know, your model, my model, there's one thing I can tell you is that both of them are going to be wrong at the end of the year. It's just who's who's closer or less wrong. And those conversations are difficult quarter to quarter when someone wants to measure you against a 12 month forecast. But I've been lucky to work with some great investors in the past. You understand that, you know, it's really hard to make the trains run on time when you're growing over 100%. And I, I, I always say to my team, like forecasting anything growing over 100% or, you know, hyper growth is really difficult. So you got to kind of, you know, just buckle up and do the best you can and, and reforecast, like you said. Okay, here we are, 17 minutes into this podcast. You have the Mostly Metrics newsletter. I have yeah. the Metrics at Measure Up podcast, and we haven't dug into metrics yet, but we're going there now, CJ. <laughs> so three primary uses of metrics that I see for a CFO, and it's really to get your feedback and your how you use them. Number one, of course, you're using historic financial performance metrics to see how you're doing against plan, against trend lines, and to inform decisions. Mm-hmm. Number two, you use historic performance metrics to inform your annual and quarterly modeling and planning process. Mm-hmm. And third, I think more CFOs and CEOs should use those performance metrics as a alignment vehicle for the executive team. Hey, here's the top three goals for the organization. Here's the metrics we're going to measure to see how we're progressing against that. And then what are the leading indicators, i.e. metrics that each of you own that impact those three kind of corporate level metrics. So first of all, does that make sense? There's three categories of how a CFO can use metrics, or did I miss something? I think those categories all make sense. And I think I agree. And there's probably a slight nuance behind some of them. And that's what I've had to do is get out of my comfort bubble of which metrics I understand and go out and learn what metrics that you may not see on an executive dashboard, but the teams themselves use them internally to see if they're on track or not. And that's important because what metrics they use internally is probably going to inform what their asks are within the budget, what people they're asking for and what software. And I'll give you an example. So like within FP&A, you know, I would go out and talk to the product team about what their needs were, but I usually wouldn't go further than, you know, CAC payback or LTV to CAC, some of the shared metrics we would talk about. But now as a CFO, I'm going deeper to figure out, you know, what's, what's an activation rate? What's an aha moment? These were metrics and concepts that I didn't realize how important they were internally to these teams. And once they clicked with me and I was willing to be the stupid one in the room and ask a lot of questions about what goes into this, how do you calculate it, how do you trend it over time, what does good look like for the product team? And it can go out for other teams too. It could be HR or, or engineering, but that allowed me to better understand what their asks were for the business. 
I love that. And it's easy for me not to be the smartest person in the room. So I'm always pulling that thread, right? And an example, you talked about activation rate. Right. This is a metric that not only PLG, but primarily product-led growth companies will really want to measure because it's a leading indicator to conversion from free or freemium to paid totally. or from initial customer acquisition to customer growth and expansion, i.e. the NDR lever. So I don't think a lot of CFOs out there really understand that those leading indicators from even product have direct impact on some of your objectives you present to the board, like net dollar retention. Yeah. And I think there are also metrics that are very specific to the business itself that like from an outside perspective, you may have never even heard of it. So uh, there was a metric the other day, you know, my CEO was talking about, and he was saying how many people use our product for a search, but don't go through to put something into the shopping cart. And like, I forget what the actual title of this metric that was invented for our company was, but it was like, whoa, that's an aha moment. So someone's using our product, but not actually going through and making a purchase on it. And it's getting to this point within the conversion funnel. And so I think with every business, you have to look at what's unique about how you monetize whatever your product or service is and deconstruct what those metrics are along the way in that funnel. It's interesting. I was talking to Nick Mehta, who's the CEO of Gainsight, about yeah. metrics, of course. And I was talking about metrics as an alignment vehicle across his executive team, across his CMO, CRO, CCO, et cetera. He's like, Ray, he goes, metrics are great, but you need to start with a strategic vision or strategy that everyone buys into and he goes, maybe there's a North Star metric yeah. that really helps measure your progress against that more strategic goal. And then you get to the operating metrics. Do you have a North Star metric that helps guide your own journey there at your current company? Yeah. Uh, so we're a an aggregator, kind of like the kayak.com of car parts, where we help garages all over the country find and procure the auto parts they need for whatever job that's being done. And we work with a lot of the big auto parts suppliers for us, it's GMV per month. So gross merchandise value flowing through our system because we take a take rate off of that. So GMV is a North Star metric, um, but it's also important to know kind of what goes into that. So I have to look at, you know, like I said, what our take rate is across different suppliers. So our blended take rate's another one. I have to look at how many monthly active repair shops are ordering from us. That's another metric we look at. And then, you know, we layer on a SaaS subscription product. So then there's a whole other host of, you know, North Star metrics, I guess, within that product set. But overall, I would say, you know, monthly GMV is is our North Star metric. There are probably 50 different metrics that go off of that. But um, at the end of the day, a lot of top line can cover up, you know, the sins of, of a lot of other issues underneath. So I think we always lead with, with GMV. I love that GMV. And though I'm not a world-class marketer, I always wanted to try to be one. So I'm going to give you a little nomenclature here. So if yeah. you can help your customers get their rev up, your rev will go up. So rev like up that. is the, because a lot of companies with GMV, it's all about how do you help your customers increase their revenue or decrease their expense in your case, right? And that's going to drive your revenue. So, hey, free advice from a non-marketer, CJ. I like that. I'm going to use that tagline. Okay. Next to last question here. I can't believe our time's almost running out, but I'm working with several industry thought leaders on creating standards for SAS metrics through the SAS metric standards board, which is going to be publicly released on January 2nd. So as a CFO who has a lot of experience with SAS metrics when you're an FP&A, 
and now you're kind of a B2C SaaS company with usage-based pricing, GMV as a core. What do you think the value of metrics being standardized would be to a CFO in the industry? First and, and foremost. And, and it's not a rhetorical question. It's like, I think it's going to be hard as a financer, CJ. Yeah, I, I think it's going to lead. You're going to save me a lot of time on footnotes on board slides. I'll tell you that because I'm always explaining how something was calculated, what was included and what was excluded. I think like, honestly, the biggest thing though is going to be comparability from one company to the next. So like, I'll give you an example. There are a lot of companies within the last three years that went out and raised money on what they said was ARR, but it was really car or contracted ARR. So basically they were using the final exit year of a multi-year contract that may have had license or usage ramps in it to essentially inflate how much the business was actually making when they weren't actually collecting revenue on that amount yet. And then you could stand back and take a look and say, well, that doesn't really compute. Like, why is there such a gap between the two? So I think you're going to bring comparability and I think you're going to also make it so there are less shocks when you get to that negotiating table with venture capitalists or shareholders who are saying, hey, how do these two things line up? Well, you know, there's a there's one way to do it and this is the right way and we should all kind of look at it the same way. You know, it's funny that you said, you know, CARR, contracted or committed ARR versus yeah. ARR. Those were the first two metrics that we took on we'll be publishing because they serve as a foundation to so many other SaaS metrics, right? Kind of multi-variable SaaS metrics. Totally. We also took on customer acquisition costs. Because if you look at things like CAC payback period or whether it's CAC ratio or the inverse of that SaaS magic number, it all depends on what you allocate to customer acquisition cost and you can game it, right? You can totally game it. And I, I love that you're doing this too, because a lot of companies will say they have a stellar CAC payback period, but they're not they're not burdening it for gross margin. So you like you could have all the revenue in the world, but like as one of my friends likes to say, you know, revenue is great, but my dog can't survive on revenue. He needs to eat gross margin to survive. <laughs> oh, maybe we should go to a cash basis for all these metrics, because my dog food requires cash, right? Yeah, exactly. Hey, CJ, I, I could talk to you for hours. So, you know, I kind of think about the things I'm going to ask. And then based upon what you say, I ask additional questions, but there's always things that I miss. So is there anything else you'd like to share with our listening audience that you think is really critical as we enter into the next fiscal year for a CFO? I would say to get outside your comfort bubble and outside your finance world and talk to other people within the company who are doing interesting things. As a CFO, like it's, it's really the chief performance officer, less so the chief financial officer. You're responsible for the performance of the company. And when you think about how do I be strategic about this, it's what's going to be the next engine for growth. And you have a current engine for growth, you're incubating another engine, and then you have future engines that'll, that'll inform your three to five year forecast that you're responsible for. And you have to go out and talk to other people within the company that are doing interesting things to figure out what those engines are and how you allocate resources and budgeting to that. I think it's also important to make sure you talk to at least one or two people a week from outside your company. You can get so caught up in the weeds and think that what you're doing is is life-saving and so important in the moment. And you know, it is important to make the company run well, but you also have to know what's going on in, in the greater world. So I do try to talk to other people from other roles, whether it be another CFO or, you know, maybe it's a chief revenue officer from another company. It just better informs how you see the world and, and what you can bring back to your own company. You know, it's interesting that you have that both internal and external perspective, because I often talk about making metrics informed 
benchmark validated decisions. And to me, metrics are very internally focused, but benchmarking is externally focused. So if you can go talk to three or four of your peers in similar like companies, you can get a perspective not only on the metrics, but on process and other strategic totally. decisions. I think the benchmarking piece is, is key because at the end of the day, everyone thinks their company is special, but you're only as good as what your metrics say you are. I like to joke that like as a kid, I used to collect baseball cards. Now I just collect benchmarking reports. So I have like a huge library of all sorts of benchmarks. And that's because I want to see how we compare to others in the industry. You know, everybody thinks that their company is unique and there are unique aspects, but you have to be able to look yourself, you know, in the mirror and say, how do we size up to other companies of either like our employee size, our revenue size, or our funding round? Totally agreed. And some great, great benchmarks, also some great finance thought leaders out there today that you can go out as a CFO and follow, whether it's CJ at Mostly Metrics or the only CFO on Twitter, Dave Kellogg, the SaaS CFO. There's just so many great thought leaders who are sharing content and their insights. There's no reason you shouldn't be engaging with the external world for amazing content. But we're going to have to wrap up, CJ, and I'm going to ask you three questions it's going to give our audience a chance to get to know CJ a little bit better. The first one is, is there a CEO or company that you think is a must follow out there for your fellow CFOs? Hmm. There are a lot of them. I think Fred Minhart from SecFi is a really bright guy. He's unlocking an asset class that's been, I think, underutilized and untapped for a long time, and that's employee startup equity. They help employees exercise their options and also take out non-recourse loans against them. So that's something that's useful if your shares are locked up for an indefinite period of time. So I think he's a, he's a really bright guy. That's a great one. Could you repeat his name again? Yeah. Frederick Minhart from SecFi. Okay. Thank you. Second, which tool, not your own, should every SaaS company be using? And I'm going to narrow it to say, maybe you can say financial tool, but you don't have to, CJ. Yeah. So I use ProfitWell. It was acquired by Paddle recently to monitor our SaaS business metrics. It's actually kind of wild. I think their data is sometimes faster than what I can actually get from Stripe. But looking at the SaaS waterfalls, especially as a company who's only had a SaaS product for about 18 months, I like to keep a, you know, a close view on what our net new you know, MRR is, what our churn is, and what our reactivations are. So having those views on ProfitWell is, is super helpful. CJ, maybe you should go into PR because in about two weeks, I'm hosting Patrick Campbell, who's the founder and CEO of ProfitWell no on the podcast. So tell if, him I if say there's hello. anything you want me to ask him, let me know. Yeah, tell him I say hello. He's a smart guy. Will do. Okay, last one. There's a lot of people earlier in their career, maybe they just graduated college, who listen to the podcast. They want to learn from people like you. So what advice would you give to a very recent college graduate or early career finance professional who wants to be one of the next great B2B SaaS CFOs? I would say it all starts with knowing what your metrics are. And that's because it's kind of how I came up in my career. You know, I was always the person who had memorized how we had performed that month to the T across different metrics. And I think the CEO and CFOs that I worked with would come to me a couple of times, say one, two or three times. And I'd always have the number for them ready. I wouldn't even have to check. And that was a habit forming motion for them. You know, after they came to me five times and they saw it, they just, every time came to me, came to me. And then you start to get pulled into rooms because they feel 
certain level of comfort that they have the numbers guy next to them in case they have to reference any performance metrics. They can focus on the overall story of where the firm's going and then they have the person next to them who, who knows the numbers. So I would say knowing the numbers of the firm and being able to speak to what the trends are better than anyone else and being accurate about it will get you into the room with smarter people faster than you would have otherwise in your career. So that was definitely an accelerant for me. How better to end another episode of the Metrics of Major Up podcast than Know Your Metrics. CJ Gustafson, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thanks so much for having me on. This is a blast, Ray. And to our listening audience, if you're enjoying the guests and the content that we're sharing with you and our guests are sharing with you, it would mean the world to us to go ahead and subscribe to the Metrics of Major Up podcast from your favorite podcasting app. Go ahead and give us that five-star rating and provide us a recommendation or review of how we can make this show even better. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, CJ. Thanks, Ray. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.